Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Dear listeners, gentle neighbors, thank you for joining us today here at Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm sitting here in the studio with our guest today, Charles Bush, and we're going to have an interview with Charles, who's a philosopher, an educator, a community designer, and well-known for starting the community school in Mendocino some 42 years ago. 42 years ago now, I think. I can't hardly think that long. (laughs) That's 42 years ago. And also, he is presently the executive director of the Fort Bragg Senior Center. So stay tuned. This is going to be a great interview with Charles Bush. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. We're going to do a little something different uh, with news and notes in psychology and medicine today, because since we have Charles here in the studio, we're going to ask him, I'm going to ask you, Charles, to participate in news and notes. So as I'm talking about the news and notes, if you have something to say, please jump right in. Chime right in. Chime right in. And Michael, please, I'd love you to chime right in as well and uh, make comments about the news and notes. Have you all been aware of the fact that uh, 300 people were arrested in the state capital, in the uh, national capital this week, Washington, D.C.? Seems like there's been a media blackout. It's the biggest arrest, number of people arrested in the capital in over 50 years have you seen anything about that, Charles? Not, not much. I knew it was going on because I've kind of been following it, but almost nothing in, in the mainstream media as far as I can tell. Michael, have you seen anything? No, same thing with me. What is going on that there is very little news about such a major event? Well, I got an email this morning from Robert Wiseman, who has been on this program and interviewed on this program. Robert Wiseman is the president of Public Citizen. Public Citizen is a national nonprofit membership organization based in Washington, D.C., and it was founded in 1971 by Ralph Nader. We all remember Ralph Nader? Yeah. Okay. Public Citizen has fought for corporate and governmental accountability to guarantee individual right to safe products, a healthy environment and workplace, fair trade, and clean and safe energy practices. That's what Ralph Nader stood for. You remember he ran for president of the United States at one point. Okay, this is public citizen. Robert Wiseman is the pro- uh, present president of uh, public citizen. He was arrested uh, this week. Sends me an email, and he says, uh, let's see here. Among the others arrested at the Capitol yesterday were Public Citizen Board member Annie Leonard, who's also Executive Director of Greenpeace, half a dozen other Public Citizen staff, and the leaders of organizations ranging from the NAACP to Friends of the Earth. Why did they get arrested? This is the reason. We find it morally unacceptable that just a few hundred super-rich people and corporations are dominating election spending and exercising an outsized influence over who runs for office, who wins, who gets debated, and what policies are ultimately adopted. 
we find it ethically intolerable for the U.S. Supreme Court to characterize corporations as a disadvantaged class, as the five-member majority did in Citizens United, and then to grant political speech rights meant for people to these artificial entities, corporations, that have far more wealth and power than living, breathing human beings. Furthermore, again, these are the reasons that they sat in and these are the reasons that over 300 people got arrested. We find it shameful beyond words that states across the country, empowered by a Supreme Court that eviscerated the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act, are making it harder to register, harder to vote, with the plain intention of impeding African Americans and Latinos, as well as others, from getting to the ballot box. It should be unimaginable that our country is undoing the hard-fought and now widely celebrated efforts of the civil rights movement to expand the franchise, but that rollback is underway. So these people across the United States are, are very concerned. They're allowing themselves to be uh, arrested. The uh, latest issue of Public Citizen said that thousands will rally in April. I know there was a rally in San Francisco. And here we are sitting in a room, I'm sitting with two gentlemen who read the papers, who stay in touch with the media, and you're telling me you've heard very little about it. What about you all, my friends and neighbors out there listening to this program? Have you heard anything about this? Where is it being covered? By the way, should you want to call in during the program, the telephone number here is 707-937-5103, 707-937-5103. I hate to sound like a complainer, <laughs> but I'm a complainer. I don't, I don't, it's not fun being a complainer. I, I want to be a happy man and not a complainer. Things are going on, I, my word, 70% of Americans take at least one prescription drug. That's two out of every three Americans take a prescription drug. More than half, that's 35%, take two prescription drugs. Now, from my perspective, I hear that 70% of Americans are taking a prescription medicine, and I think something's not right. I mean, they're being talked into or sold on taking on taking these drugs. However, that's not, that's not what the government's approach is. The government is saying the reason these people are taking it, taking all these drugs, is because we have more and more people that need drugs. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy there, isn't it? it, it, it what's going on? And now we have this opioid epidemic, but for years, the medical doctors around the country, as well as the government, we're pushing opioids to get people out of pain as if so many people are in pain. By the way, it turns out that the three most common prescription drugs in the United States are opioids, antidepressants, and antibiotics. Okay, antibiotics I can understand. You have bacteria in your system and you want to get them out of your system. But to have the second most popular drug in the United States prescribed be an antidepressant? Is that, what are we saying? Well, w one way the government is interpreting this is 
we've got all these depressed people, so we've got to give them medicine. And yet we know from Robert Whitaker, who was on this program twice, who wrote about it in Anatomy of an Epidemic, that there's a lot of reason to believe that the antidepressants are causing more problems for people, more suicidality, more depression, than the drugs are doing good. This, this needs to be, this very much needs to be looked at. Somebody's trying to get through this early. Should we let them get on for a moment? What the, sure. Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, you guys. Hi, Charles. It's Billy Shiva calling. Hi, it's somebody named Billy Shiva, and Charles can't hear you, but I'll, I'll translate. Hi, what's up, Billy? Hi, well, uh, you guys were talking about the protest in Washington, D.C., and you were saying where would be the source of the information. Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! has had something on it about it every single morning. And yesterday's arrest, about 300 people. Actually, last week, uh, there was one day where the arrest was 400 people, and one day the arrest was 500 people. So it's a big thing going on, and uh, I think the reason they're not uh, doing it on mainstream media is because it would support the Bernie Sanders campaign, and we can't have that, you know. Well, thank you, Billy. Th thank you, and uh, thank you for calling in. So, folks, if you want to know more about these arrests, hundreds and hundreds of people, more people arrested than any amount in the last over 50 years, check in with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! Billy, thank there you go. for that call. That's, they're very appreciated. You better hear Charles for me. I sure will. He's having a little technical trouble right now, but I'll say your friend Billy called in and he says say hello. Hi, Billy. <laughs> Good morning. Sorry, I can't hear you. Okay, where to next? Well, in the years 1950 to 1973, the United States government was involved in a program called MKUltra. I'm going to read to you what uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, certainly of profound reputation, said to the United States Senate in 1977 about MKUltra. This is Senator Ted Kennedy, and I quote, Some two years ago, the Senate Health Subcommittee heard chilling testimony about the human experimentation activities of the Central Intelligence Agency. The deputy director of the CIA revealed that over three, 30 universities and institutions were involved in an extensive testing and experimentation program, which included covert drug tests on unwitting citizens at all social levels, high and low, Native Americans and foreign. Several of these tests involved the administration of LSD to unwitting subjects in, uh, in social situations. I'm, I'm not going to read the entire thing that uh, Kennedy said here, but I think you get the gist of it. The San Francisco Chronicle recently had a front page article on MKUltra. This is the year 2016. MKUltra went on from the early 50s until it was closed in 1973. 1973 is 27, uh, 30s, 43 years ago. 43 years ago is when this program was closed. 
43 years later, the San Francisco Chronicle finally has an article on the front page about human experimentation where people who did not know anything about what was going on were dosed with various levels of the most powerful psychedelic medicine that we have ever been able to discover, lysergic acid diethylamide, known as LSD. The United States government hired hookers in San Francisco to lure men into special apartments that were fitted out so that the people watching, in, who were the CIA agents, could watch through one-way mirrors and they could hear everything that was going on. The hookers gave these men LSD. The same thing went on in other areas of the United States. It's almost unimaginable. What makes the whole thing even worse is the fact that in 1973, the head of the CIA, Jesse Helm, had all of the records of all of these experiments, including the names of all the subjects, destroyed. So we cannot follow up. We cannot learn anything about them. We cannot learn what happened to them. We cannot learn anything. The only thing, the little thing that we do know is the Unabomber was one of these um, uh, subjects. Wow. And he was a Harvard student at the time, and he's made comments in the Harvard alumni uh, book about some of what happened to him. Uh, he's made it from jail, of course, because he's in there for the rest of his life. What to say here? Uh, I'm, I'm aghast and, and interesting when I discussed it with you on the, uh, on the way over here today, Charles. You know, your comment was, but we're not surprised. Well, I'm not surprised, but I am disappointed. Why? Because I was brought up to believe that we lived in a better country than this. I was brought up to believe that this kind of experimentation on human subjects without their knowledge is the kind of thing that goes on in Russia or maybe China or definitely in North Korea but not, I don't want to be part of that gang. And yet, we are part of that gang. And it's, it's disappointing. It's just disappointing. It is, but you know, at the same time, I think we, it's important to realize and remember that, that culture's evolving just like everything else evolves. And uh, we're not there yet by a, long, by a long shot. And so, in some sense, you, you, you would have to go, suddenly there's a chemical... We have it in our hands. We know that it has a profound effect on human consciousness, sometimes alters values, perspectives in unimaginable ways. If you were a government that wanted to maintain control and law and order and understand what was going on, you would probably want to experiment and find out what this incredibly powerful chemical was and, and how it worked. And, and that it was kind of a nefarious approach is not untypical of governments in general. Government tends to have a kind of a heavy hand. That's probably part of what folks are in Washington objecting to right now. And uh, we're a long way away from a gentle hand and an agreement uh, of values. And so we've got conflict and we've got sides to conflict. And so sometimes when people conflict, we get bad behavior in favor of something you believe is essential and necessary. 
And that kind of reflects uh, the situation of our politics today, too, rather than, you know, I, I always remember what, what, um, what Obama said when he came in, which was there are lots of things we don't agree about. Let's get to work on the ones that we do, and we'll tackle the harder ones later. But there's so much that we agree about, and we lost our way about that. And that's probably what happened back then, too. This is a, an exciting new chemical, but it also is threatening. And so shall we right out in front do the experiments and see what happens? Or shall we maybe, out of our fear, do them clandestinely um, and then cover up the results of what we find is something that we can't understand? And it certainly is true that, uh, by and large, government is not going to understand what the inner realities and inner effects and importance of psychedelics are. They belong in different categories in a strange way, unfortunately. At least until now. I love your positive attitude and your developmental attitude towards this. I, I really do. I, what you're saying, in effect, is that uh, we're still a young country and sure. give us a little more time and we'll get it right, but uh, we're screwing up along the way and that's to be expected. Michael, somebody's trying to get through there, so let's give them a chance to say hello. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning. It's Acorn over here by Ukiah. And uh, you were, it, everything you're talking about relates to what I was originally calling about, which is the depression and the medicine and all that, because uh, from my point of view, people have lost hope. And when they don't have hope, they just go down the drug alley because at least there's something in there. Why? So, why do? You, why? Why are people losing hope, Mr. Well, Acorn? It's it's because, uh, in my opinion, you know, between the many many factors, it's because they don't see any chance for moving into the better world that we thought we were born into. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. That's a very that's a very astute comment. People lose hope. They don't see ways of bettering themselves, and so they turn to drugs and food and gambling and the other impulses searching around for something outside of themselves to give them hope on the inside of themselves. Well, and you know that in older times, the news was exceptional and there wasn't a lot of it and it took a long time to get it around. Nowadays, there's more than you could possibly consume, takes no time to get it around. So if, if, if half and half, if it's half good and half bad, something about human nature is drawn to the bad. And so partly we're inundated by bad news. In my reality, uh, we're making more progress on every front that we can imagine worldwide. We have less poverty, uh, we have more wealth, we have better living conditions, greater education, higher amount of literacy, we're living longer, we're living healthier lives, and so on. But somehow we get seduced into thinking that everything is bad, bad, bad. But in fact, if you measure and look and observe, we're really doing very well. Granted, new problems are arising all the time, but, but isn't that the nature of humanity? I mean, we're, if, if, if we were put here for a purpose at all, it has to be to look, to see what's wrong, to design ways to do it better, and then to get on with it. And we're in a kind of a lumpy stage right now where we're hearing our own feedback so loudly that we're noticing how many problems are left and we're not paying much attention to the millions of problems that we've resolved and are moving on from. Great attitude. I love I'm, how you're I balancing 
don't have to be my, pessimistic. You no, know? You're, I love how you're balancing my complaining. I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm on here and I warn people about this medicine and about that medicine and try to get them to take better care of themselves. But I, I, as I said earlier, I don't, don't like having this complaining attitude. And you're taking a great attitude towards it. Once again, developmental. You know, look at the look at the the part of the glass that's half full is what you're saying, and we really are making progress, and that is true. That is true, because when I was in college, a man went to jail, uh, Ralph Gleason, for putting on the mag on his magazine a hand of a black man holding the hand of a white right. woman. Remember that? And he there went to go. jail for 10 years for that, and we are way beyond that now. And we know there was a time when, when police were raiding bars in Manhattan and, and, uh, and arresting uh, what they called homosexuals, we refer to as gay now, arresting them just for being homosexuals. And we've come way beyond that as well. Looks like somebody else is trying to get through, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. I just checked the New York Times and The Guardian, huge, huge newspapers, and they both reported on thousands attending and hundreds being arrested. And I've been getting uh, personal reports from two acquaintances I have in Washington from California who uh, traveled to there, and I've been getting their uh, copies of reports from the D.C. press. Thank you. Thank you. Good to know the New York Times that major newspapers are carrying it because we haven't seen anything. I haven't. I watch the news on, on CNN and on Fox on a fairly regular basis to keep up with the election, and I've seen hardly anything. So thank you for that. That's helpful. And, and um, another thing I wanted to say about antidepressants. Yes. This last time when I had a pretty serious episode, uh, if it hadn't been for, for the just minute, minute, uh, granular quantity of an antidepressant. Uh, I mean, I went from fuzzy to clear. What was the antidepressant, please? I'm sorry. I, I, I feel funny about, about telling you, but okay. it's an old one. It's an old one. Okay, fair enough. An old, a oh. very Okay, well, thank you. And I think that's a point well taken. Thanks for the call. A point well taken, which is because Whitaker has pointed out, and rightfully so, about the dangers of the SSRIs, that is not to say that some people aren't getting positive results, because that is also true, and I know that some of my patients have gotten uh, positive results from them. But it's a warning, because... Uh, we have warnings with many medicines about side effects, and some people get very, very negative side effects, and others don't. And, you know, we're all in a gigantic experiment, a drug experiment, during what you, Charles Bush, called, you know, the development of where we are at the present time, because we're learning about these, these different medicines, and all of us are the guinea pigs in the experiment with almost anything that we take. I think we, we also are, are, in a certain strange way, we're victims of our own rising expectations. I think 50 years ago, um, depression and, and pain that was difficult to control and, and certain kinds of, of uh, medical dysfunctions, that was just part of growing up, getting older, and, and, and what you took care of. I think we have an expectation now that, that medicine and culture in general are going to be able to help us um, live better, happier, more pain-free, less anxious, uh, more positive kinds of lives. 
And we used to look at medicine as something that stepped in an emergency when there was a serious situation. You occasionally took a prescription drug, but it was, it was an emergency response system. Now, we're, we've grown to the place where we want to integrate all of medicine into the just natural process of living well, being happy, being successful, and managing our lives in a, in a very positive way. And, and so I think um, that it's, it's intriguing to me that, that painkillers and antidepressants are the two most prescribed medications besides antibiotics. One of the things that suggests is that we're, we, we expect to be able to resolve these kinds of issues in our lives. I think they're not all resolvable, partly is one of the situations, but it may be the beginning of a very positive trend, which is to integrate medicine and psychology and philosophy and community sensitivity and politics all together, like the name of your show. I've always loved the name of your show, Richard, because it says the four things that are intricately involved. And if they're intricately involved, then we do have high expectations everywhere. Charles, I've been very influenced by science my, my entire life. I'm very influenced by the Duke University studies, which compared the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, to exercise. Exercise, <laughs> left, exercise yeah. left the medicine in the dust so far. At the same time, as a practitioner, I've been a mental health provider for 50 years, I'm quite aware of the fact that getting a person who's depressed to exercise, <laughs> you need a, a backhoe sometimes, you know, to lift the person out of bed. And so a pill will lift you out of bed. But I can't help being, you know, very, and I can help it, but I choose to be very influenced by, uh, by the exercise uh, experimentation, including follow-up three and five years later. That These Duke studies are very important. We've got to move on because we're so, <laughs> I'm having so much fun talking about the news and notes that we're not getting to, what the, to your interview. And so, folks, this is Charles Bush who's been uh, uh, talking with me during the news and notes section. He's a philosopher. He's an educator. He's a community designer. He's been involved in starting both residential and non-residential communities for the past 50 years. We have been so fortunate to have him uh, in our community, and I feel very fortunate to have him as my personal friend, whom I love very much, and I say that without hesitation. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Likewise, <laughs> my, <for sure. laughs> my pleasure. And uh, many of you know him because he started the community school in the village of Mendocino in, uh, on the coast in Northern California. And many of you know him because he is presently the executive director of the Fort Bragg Senior Center. It's interesting, two ends. Uh, you know, I started out, I first moved here and started out working with, uh, with a uh, a community of very young people um, went out and designed a bunch of other stuff and did a bunch of work. And now I'm back again and, and, and working with a community of elders. And it's such a, a lovely book ending of, I think, of my whole life and career. And, uh, you know, the issues of community are the same regardless of the age of the people. Their textures change as the sorts of groups you work with change. Uh, but for me and my work, a community is the anchor out of which consciousness and mind and soul arise. 
they don't arise. One person on a desert island, uh, isolated, um, might have mind and might have consciousness, but we wouldn't really know how to categorize it and we wouldn't know how it would emerge exactly because we emerge embedded, we emerge from community and community is the most important tool in improving our lot, I think. And so we have this beautiful senior community. Here in uh, Fort Bragg on the Fort coast. Bragg on the coast here. Okay, and let's it's talk extraordinary. about that. Let's talk about that. Senior centers. We have senior centers, do we, around the United States? 14,000 of them. We have 14,000. 14,000 senior centers in the United States. All of them funded in a wide range of ways, everything from local government to local community contributions to uh, municipalities, county governments, state government, and finally the federal government through the Older Americans Act. Tell us, what is a senior center? Well... The easiest way to describe a senior center is to identify five important things that have a great deal to do both with longevity and the quality of a longer life. Here they are. It's just this simple. Eat, ride, play, learn, and serve. Eat, ride, play, learn, and serve. Senior centers all over the country, the 14,000 of them, all do it a little bit differently, a little bit different emphasis. But the first thing they do is create some kind of a restaurant or a dining room or a place where elders in the community can come and have a meal together, to break bread together every single day. You know, the sharing of food is probably the first most bond in the first families that ever existed on this earth, and, and we share that with all other creatures and other animals. So it's no accident that in senior centers serving elders, we get together, we share our hearts and our minds, we facilitate engagement over meal. And in senior centers all across the United States, that happens every single day. We serve 50,000 lunches every year. We, we haul 100 lunches out, volunteers haul 100 lunches out in cars to deliver to, to elders who are shut in and can't get here out Here in of Fort Bragg, 100 right here lunches? In Fort, 100 lunches every single day. And how many lunches do you serve in the senior center? Another 100. Another so, 100 to 110. So 210, 220 lunches every single day. How old do you have to be to have 60, a lunch? you got, you got to be 60 years old. Senior centers, uh, the other thing about senior centers is that, that they're the magical future. We think of them as having to do with old people in the past. They're really the magical future. Senior centers, the only place I know of, I mean, it's the only restaurant, certainly in Fort Bragg, where um, you come. We, we don't have an extensive menu. We have a beautiful salad bar, a lovely entree, great, great food all the time. You come through the door, and we say, what can you afford to pay today for your meal? That's the how much it costs for you. If you're over 60, come eat. If you can chip in five bucks a day, that'll pay for the meal. If you can't, we'll raise the money to pay for the rest of the meal. Everything at the senior center works that way. Pay as much as you can afford, as deeply as you can value. Do your share. We, we've done away with the idea that the food belongs to Jim or Agnes. The food belongs to everybody. The center belongs to everybody. The programs are for everybody. And everybody has to do their share to support the whole program. It's not that each piece belongs to each individual. It's that the whole thing belongs to all the individuals because as we will learn increasingly in the future, there's plenty of wealth to go around if we share and take care of one another and don't just blow it all up, which we continue to do with about half of all the wealth on the earth every day in the form of bonds and bombs and planes and so on. So all I'm saying is there's plenty of wealth. Senior Center leads the way. Pay what you can, and we provide elegance and gracefulness of food 
Second thing that happens, you get older at a certain point, can't drive your car anymore. You live up here in a rural area, there's not much public transportation. MTA does a great job with limited resources. So we run buses every day. So if you're old and you can't drive, you pick up your phone, you call the senior center and go, hey, I need to go banking today, or I got to get down there for lunch, or I want to go for a walk on the new trail that opened up down in the south. And we'll come get you and take you there and then bring what, you back they, home. They again. call the senior center and say, can you give me a ride? Yeah, just call the senior center, regular phone number, you know, and, and uh, um, you know, it's just 964-0443. And you say, hey, I need a ride. And we have 90 people um, on our regular rider list as well as occasional uh, phone-in. So I've, I've got to say, let me interrupt yeah. you here. Folks, did you hear that? If you know someone over 60 who needs a ride, they can call 707-964-0443, 707-964-0443, and one of your purple uh, buses, they're purple buses, aren't they? One of them is purple, the other two are white. Oh, we, one we of wish them is, they were I all see purple. The, but, I see yeah, matching you your shirt, you're wearing them, a purple yeah. shirt today, yeah. and the bus will come and pick you up and take you... To wherever you want to go. Again, within, you know, from about from about uh, Casper up to about Cleon, about about that Understood. stretch, you know. Understood. So there's some But, you know, east up all the little arterials in the back. And all you have to do is be over 60. All you got to be is over, be over 60. We, we like to pick up a buck a ride if we can. Uh-huh. If we can't, we'll work something out because we, we don't ever want to exclude anybody. Fantastic. So eat, ride, ride. Play. Play. The older we get, two things happen. One of them is our kids go away, our families disperse. A lot of the institutions that sustained us during our child rearing and and the latter part of our business career um, either aren't available to us or aren't appropriate anymore, and we get isolated. And and it's very easy to have. You wake up one morning, maybe a spouse dies or isn't as active anymore. Your friends are retiring. There's no place to get connected, and you're lonely. And, And you need to play. You need to make... Contact. You need heart-to-heart, hand-to-hand, eyeball-to-eyeball, ear-to-mouth contact. So essentially, um, we run a, a lively program of 20, 25 activities every single week of every conceivable sort. Uh, games, crafts, arts, uh, educational, exploration, intellectual, you name it, somebody's doing it. And if we aren't and somebody wants to do it, you come up and we'll help you get something started. We started a great class called a humor class. Um, and uh, Sharon Bowers, just amazing woman, uh, teaching cartooning, joke writing, and and funny storytelling. What an amazing thing to offer to everybody. The voice you're listening to is Charles Bush, who's the executive director of the Fort Bragg Senior Center. He's talking about what takes place at a senior center. We've heard that they feed people, over 100 people a day at the senior center, plus over 100 people get meals delivered to their homes. He's talking about rides that people over 60 can get by calling 707-964-0443, and the senior center will send a bus to the person's home and take them someplace. He's talking about play, various activities for them. He's doing all this on our program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller, and now more from Charles Bush. What are the other two things? You said five <laughs> things. Eat, ride, play. Learn and serve. Learn that, and serve. So number four is, is learning. We we are learning monkeys. I think if anything distinguishes us from other creatures, not that other creatures don't learn, but we do so with such depth. So our nature is to look to see things that might be better and to design ways for them to get there. That's the essence of who we are. 
When we stop being full-time employed or working full-time lots of times and our families are raised and our houses are okay, we kind of we give up on the getting new learning. Senior centers are at their most vital when they offer classes, programs, intellectual discussion, uh, book study groups. Every conceivable way that people can learn, can deepen their consciousness should be available and certainly is available at our senior center, not just at the senior center, but all through the community. So the senior center at the learning level also is kind of a clearinghouse for where do you get connected with a good book club? Uh, what are great films to see? How do you find people to discuss the things that are of interest to you and them? How do you engage in uh, your local community and local politics? Where are there boards or agencies or groups that are looking for membership to guide them and so on? So that's the learning part. We both teach and we extend out into the community and connect community learning resources up with seniors who are looking for things to feed the mind. Because if you don't feed the mind, then you atrophy and get old faster and die. And, That's right. And feeding the mind is important. How are these programs uh, attended? How is your attendance at these various things? I mean, how do people even know? It's a second question. One's how's your attendance, and the other is how do pe people know that you exist and you offer such things? I mean, until getting educated by you today, and of course other days, because I know you personally, I always thought a senior center is a sort of a place where old folks <laughs> hang out and sit around. I right. have no idea. Very old folks sitting in the hall, just kind of staring exactly. off in the space. And it's about the opposite of that as you can possibly Sounds imagine. Sounds like a vibrant community. Completely vibrant. Wow. So and, uh, well, let, let's finish up the, the fifth item. So, okay, fine. So eat, ride, play, learn, serve. 75 elders every single day come into that senior center and run it. We, there's no way we could afford to hire the amount of staff and the amount of expertise it would take to operate a program of the size and dimension. We have, a, we have about a $900,000 a year budget. I like to say we, we provide about a $3 million a year menu of programs yeah, and activities. Like and part of that gets taken up by the fact that there are 75 folks who come in there every day, most of them over 60, 65, and they do everything under the sun. They, they take care of elders in the daycare center. Um, they wait tables. They drive Meals on Wheels and Delivery. They uh, manage and operate a thrift store. Um, they work in the office. They do surveys. They provide advice and counseling to people. It just goes on and on and on and on. So the, and these aren't like make-work kind of jobs. These are the kind of things where you go, I may not be working full-time right now, but they need me. I'm vital. If I'm not there, that senior center isn't going to happen. And if the senior center doesn't happen, people's needs aren't going to get taken care of, and there'll be less joy in the world. So I'm important. Serve. Eat, ride, play, Please learn, learn serve. serve. Very simple, traditional, been going on for uh, 50 years now. Um, all over the United States, 14,000 of us. This one here started 41 years ago and uh, hasn't, hasn't missed a breath since. Uh, the funding is always up and down. We always want people to contribute and help us out there. But, you know, it always works. And uh, it is a little hard getting word out. I, most, mostly all of this gets out word of mouth. The newspaper, local newspaper, helps us a whole bunch. But it's hard to, to get word out that this exists and that it's going on all the time. That not only does it exist, but to get word out about these wonderful programs yeah. that go on so mm. that people know it's not just a place to warehouse a bunch of old folks. That's why I like, you know, I, it, it, it probably took us eight years to get it down to those five words, and, and we really have gotten it down to eat, ride, play, learn, and serve in a unique way that fits elders in terms of who they are and who they're becoming. One of the most exciting things to me about our senior center here is 
Um, we're more interested in the future than we are in the past. People sometimes fault elders for dwelling in the past. There's a tendency to do that because you have so much and it's so rich. And so it's nice to share those stories. But what we believe is that because we live a long time, used to, you know, it was only 50 years ago that, that you got Social Security at 65, died at 72, and that was the end of the story. Now you're dying at 86, and in another 15 years it's going to be 90, and then another 25 years it's going to be 100. That'll be the norm. Uh, the, 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 the three elders in the room right here, are, we're all going to probably live close to about, about that age. So as seniors and as senior centers, it's time for us to begin to look at this, this last stage of life as a stage of growth and development into the future, not as a tailing off into the sunset. Totally different way of looking Completely at it. different way. Revolutionary. Revolutionary. Inside Revolutionary. out. Indeed. Now, I want to hear some about the advocacy program that you started to tell me about, because that sounds very important, and we have a little time. Okay. Um, we've kind of started a new initiative, and, and it's not starting just with us. AARP, by the way, just, just uh, the, the executive director of AARP just published a book called Disrupting Aging, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to disrupt the concept of aging. They kind of got on a couple years after we got started, but that's okay. They're catching on. Tell us what <laughs> AARP stands for. AARP is uh, Association for the Advancement of Retired People. That's the famous, you know, the big AARP that at age 50 begins sending you things in the mail to subscribe and become a member. My point here is that basically... Let me interrupt you for yeah, a moment. I like know. to take calls when they come in occasionally oh, yeah. if we're not right in the middle of something. Thank you, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um, I haven't... I've missed uh, some of the programs, so I, I don't know if you've covered this or not, but I wonder if Charles could um, put a good word in for the social day program that Elizabeth runs wonderfully and brilliantly. My wife was in that for the, past, the last seven years of her life. And then also, uh, if he could talk about the outreach program and, and the kinds of resources uh, that are for referrals and information and help and so on uh, <clears throat> that the Senior Center can provide for not only seniors, but uh, their children uh, and caregivers, um, <clears throat> really anything regarding seniors that has anything to do with what seniors might, might need help with. Okay, you want us, to, uh, Charles, to talk about the social day program and the outreach program. I'm sure he'll do that. And thank you for the coaching. We appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah, the so social day program is um, one of the things that affects us as elders is that people can experience cognitive decline as the result of a variety of brain conditions, illnesses, and uh, have memory loss and an inability to, to make really clear uh, discrimination and, and judgment and need constant care. Uh, they may function in other ways very effectively, but somebody needs to be with them all the time to keep them safe, and they can't necessarily remember what's going on, so it's a very unique kind of relationship to be with them, and we've run a program where we have some professionals and a bunch of volunteers um, four days a week from 8.30 in the morning until 2 in the afternoon. These folks come in, and they have a one. there's just an absolutely wonderful social group and program involving music and dance and conversation and discussion and a great meal, all the same kinds of things that make our lives rich, but in an environment that's totally safe and totally supervised and tender and loving and creative and zany 
and exciting. And this happens four days a week at the senior center, and it's been going on forever. Our um, our one of the one of our current board members, Claudia Boudreau, was a person who got a, a huge uh, federal grant to get this program started, not only here but but in other places in California, and it's thrived ever since she really got that program going. And and for us, it's sometimes I forget it because it's a little tiny piece inside a much larger community. But it's exactly what you would expect. You know, um, in, in an old-time community where there was a continuity across generations, there were always people in the community who needed to be treated differently, needed a special kind of care, needed special kinds of relationships. And communities found ways to do that in, in terms of their just their natural spontaneous resources. We've gotten so big and spread out, that doesn't always happen, although in our community we see parents and friends and safe passages and those organizations performing that kind of function for people who need special support. This is our little piece. This is the piece that the Senior Center contributes to our special population who needs this kind of very special support. Are there any analogous programs to this for other age groups, Charles? Uh, I'm not aware of any. Maybe for teenagers, possibly? I think... Uh, not I th with 14,000 around the country. Yeah, I think that, that um, in a certain strange way, I think that public education has grown up into being the social institution that, that, that has a great deal to do with the social welfare and comfort and raising of our... That's how we collectively kind of raise our children. Senior centers, I think, are, are uh, the main thing that we're doing. The newest thing that's happening, of course, is the residential senior center. The, the fast, one of the fastest growing housing areas are senior residential communities, full service residential communities. You can head in about 55 or 60 and you're there until you die. And that may be at, at 70 or 90 or whatever. And it has, it has a continuum of services and care depending on your unique needs. Senior centers are the non-residential version of that, cheap, accessible to everybody and community-based. The new model that's growing is you live there too. And, but, but the program and the services and the dynamics inside the community are the same, whether it's a residential or a non-residential community. Isn't that kind of interesting? So, so there, is, there is growth in culture institutions that are doing these same kinds of things. I don't know that we have a large enough um, population here to support that kind of a community. It, it certainly will eventually be needed. Right now, as a senior center, we have to kind of uh, fill in all the gaps. I have caution about the residential communities for older people because of the lack of intergenerational communication. It seems to me that the way we started being tribal animals is people of all ages live together and to suddenly start putting people in housing based on their age, which means you're going to have a very homogeneous population, and they're not going to have the positive uh, effects of being with people of other age groups, are they? I think that's really true, and I, I think it's, uh, uh, again, um, I think this is a kind of a transition phase, and probably a very important one because of uh, radical changes in, particularly in, in healthcare, um, and in what we expect in our long lives. We just haven't evolved the institutions to deal with uh, 30 years of 
um, non-working, semi-retirement, yeah. but but vital, lively, deeply interested, and in, and highly capable people. It's a brand new thing for us. So we're just trying to search for the ways to do this and you know? to hang out together and make nice. Exactly. I mean, you know, one of the things that I first got started in communities uh, building and designing student housing, uh, college student housing. I would say the same thing about that. What a bizarre thing to put every put. You, know, you got people at about a nine year range, and you put them all together, and you have them sleep in something like cells. Not anymore. We design, we undesigned that. We disrupted that kind of concept of student housing. They were unique to the needs of that group of people, and I I would see us um, breaking out of the. I mean, the most to me the most damaging now the most damaging idea is the is the little nuclear family home that has mom, dad, two kids, and no relationships with anybody else. That may seem like it's intergenerational, but in fact, it may be the most isolating form of housing we've ever tried. And by comparison, a senior community is a hotbed of community activity and inter-engagement. And again, we have to remember, you're in a senior community. You enter at age 55 and you die at, night at age 97. That's pretty cross-generational. We, we tend to think of old. <laughs> that's very true. And that's because in our habit, old started at 65 when you retired and ended at 72 when you died. And so we don't think about being old as a time of growth and development and change and unfolding of the spirit and the mind and the body. We tend to think of it as short and the end game, and that's it. Yeah, we've got to stop thinking about totally. ourselves as acting a certain age because we are that particular age. Yeah, the, we? the world is insisting that we disrupt our ideas about what it is to age. And so the most exciting part of all of this quest is the investigation of aging, which I believe we are just beginning. We're just beginning. Tell us about the advocacy program the at advocacy the program, Senior Center. The advocacy program really is primarily uh, the institutionalizing and support of that investigation that I just talked about. What does it mean to get old? It certainly means, among other things, different kinds of, of social and, and uh, living experiences. It means different kinds of health experiences. It, needs, it means different kinds of physical relationship with your senses and your bodies. And on and on and on. All these different things that change. We never did this before. We never, did, we never lived from 65 to 95 in large numbers. And now that's what we're doing. So senior advocacy starts with an investigation of what it means to live from age 60 to age 95. Secondly, to identify all the tools, all the resources, all the ideas that are useful. Third, to make them available educationally to everybody. And fourth, to train elders, to educate elders, to invite elders into not becoming staff of a senior center, but taking a senior center out to wherever you live. In other words, you need to become an expert elder so that when a newbie elder comes up, you can go, oh, I've already, I know how to do that. The best way to do that is, and the list could be a thousand items long, unique things that are appropriate to elders. And so the idea is to give up on the old elders are infirm and need social services model. Not that that isn't partly true and it will continue to be true, but to exchange it for a model that says eldering is a new and incredibly exciting phase of life and we need guides and concierges and front desks at the hotel of aging and neighbors who have done it already and are pretty darn good at it and when you get 
discombobulated by getting old and not knowing how to do something. There's somebody around and say, oh, this is how you do it. You go see so-and-so. So-and-so will help you set up a, a living trust. You go see so-and-so. You're just having typical uh, arthritis, but there's things that can be done about that. I know that your kids never come to visit you, but we can hook you up with some local kids who would love to have a visit, and it'll almost serve the bill. I know it's incredibly hard to get down to Santa Rosa for your appointments, but we'll try and find you a ride, and so on and so on and so on and so on. So senior advocacy means taking that core function that we've done for 40 years at a senior center, equipping the individual elder to perform that same service function and support for each other and empowering everybody getting rid of the walls getting rid of the transportation getting rid of the publicity problem just learning to guide ourselves to be wise elders to ourselves all of us have some wisdom we need to identify it share it kind of gather it all together and support us in becoming consultants to each other. So that's the new vision. It sounds like a terrific, uh, a terrific vision. We're having a hard time because when we first announced the program, I think people quite correctly go, well, I'm going to come into the senior center and get trained and then you're going to place me in some kind of a volunteer job. And the hardest thing to communicate is no, we have already deeply engaged in the research phase we want help doing the research discovering resources discovering creative ways to live as elders and then we're going to disperse all of those not only through the senior center but primarily electronically because you know elders are now online they're in their phones they're on their tablets they're everywhere you could possibly think and we're going to fill the, that media with the best possible information about good eldering I want to talk some about exercise with, uh, with seniors, but I think I'd like to take this call. We've got four more minutes. Thank you, Michael. Let's see if we can take that, uh, th take that caller. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Thank you very much for being there. Um, I would like to throw in a little bit of reality. I grew up in uh, Laytonville, and I was there visiting yesterday, and there's a Native American friend of mine who has no car and is taking care of her grandkids. And I would like to know how we can get transportation. I live in Willits, and I was willing to sign up for a driver. You know, if I, if I can get paid to take the gas, I can get up there to help her to get to appointments and get to groceries and stuff. But this is where it's an outlying area. Okay. And I'm just wondering if you could touch on that. Thank you very Thank much you. for the call. I hear your dog in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, this is uh, the, the, the two most difficult, uh, I think, unfolding problems uh, in a rural area like this are transportation and housing. We're experiencing the housing squeeze now. We've been experiencing the transportation squeeze for a long time. I don't have a really good at the moment solution but what i i do know what we need and and in big cities it's already happening in these new companies where people have a car and they can they can uh, make the car available you can you can use your cell phone what we need is a network a ride network there's no ride network we haven't done that yet and that's one of the that's one of the primary focuses in the next year of the senior advocacy program is to is to get up online a volunteer i will give you a ride i'm going service so that's the first point of attack, the best point of attack that I know of, because the vehicles are there, the drivers are there, the need is there, and all that's missing is the connection. So the first place we're going to go to be practical is to try to start working network. on the connection. Sounds terrific. Yeah. Charles, where is the Fort Bragg Senior Center? 
It's uh, uh, it's right up by the by the middle school next to Cotton Auditorium, uh, Harold and Pine. You go right through Main Street, turn at the brewery east, and uh, you'll run right into our parking lot. Right near the middle school, that's easy to know. What's the telephone number for the Fort Bragg Senior Center, Nine six four zero four four three. Same number as the rides. You betcha. 707-964-0443. Do you have a website? Of course you do. RCS Center. Dot org. Say R- it again, please. RCS, Redwood Coast Senior, rcscenter.org. Thank you, and thank you so much for joining <laughs> us today, Charles. It's been wonderful having you here. As always, it's wonderful visiting. And thank you all for joining us today, and thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please know that we have a website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and there are archives of the uh, old shows, former shows, I shouldn't say old, that are on the archive. You can also go to the jukebox on the KZYX uh, website to hear uh, prior shows. In addition, I did a special website for the extensive uh, series I did on psychedelic medicine, and that website is called psychopedia.org. So thank you again for listening to our program, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend Mike DeLora. Please join us again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth working hard for, and it's essential for life. 